Acts chapter number 8. Here's our scene. Uh, this man, Stephen, uh, was one of the first deacons. He was accused of blaspheming God and being against Moses, being against the temple. And he was put on trial by the Sanhedrin. And for about 52, 53 verses, he defended himself and showed why he believed what he believed. They got the implication. He culminated in telling the Sanhedrin that their hearts were uncircumcised. They were filthy within spiritually and told them that you are just like, in fact, you're worse than our forefathers, our Jewish forefathers. They always persecuted and even killed many of the prophets. You've done worse because you've killed the very Messiah that the prophets were predicting. You've done worse than them. You're the worst of the worst. Apparently, they didn't like that. And so they responded by just pouncing on him, attacking him, dragging him out of the city. And they commenced to stone him. Again, we're not talking about rocks. We're talking about stones, maybe stones. Depends how strong somebody is. This would have been a very gory, very bloody situation. And he dies. I don't know if you even saw it. Did you catch the one line? If we'll turn our eyes upon Christ, if you'll turn your eyes, then the things of this world grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Uh, the writer must have had Stephen on his mind because Stephen... And in this moment, he's just praying and he's asking God, don't lay this sin. They're murdering me. Don't count that against them. And Jesus, would you receive my spirit? And he dies. And so that's our introduction this morning. Would you look at verse 1? And Saul, you'll have to forgive me today if I weave in and out of calling this person Saul Paul. His name is Saul Paulus. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. Um, and so he's going to be known more as Paul later on, but at this point he went more by Saul. And he's already been introduced to us earlier, the first time. Um, by the way, when we get to chapter 13, this guy's going to be front and center with a lot that's coming up. He's just briefly touched at the end of chapter 7 where the witnesses that stoned Stephen, it's very vigorous activity to kill someone that way, so they laid their garments, and Saul is the one who's apparently has some authority, uh, and he's apparently one of the prominent witnesses, and so they're laying their garments, and he's very close at hand, seeing and hearing all that happens to Stephen, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. It doesn't mean like light consent, like, hey, if you must, I guess go ahead. No, this means active approval. Yes! Kill him! And Saul approved of his execution, loved it. And there arose on that day, I mean, boom, lightning fast. There arose on that day a great persecution. This persecution is going to continue into the 300s for about 300 years. It's going to start Jewish. It's going to have a lot of Jewish flair to it, especially at the beginning. The Romans will pick up the torch, and they'll be persecuting Christians. Here's where it started. There arose on that. Now, we know that the apostles have already been being persecuted, but not just the average church people. But there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles, and by the way, this doesn't mean literally every Christian left Jerusalem. They didn't. It just means a lot of them had to leave. We know this church was 20,000 plus people. And Jerusalem's population dropped that day. The church had mostly stayed in Jerusalem. Kept meeting in houses and meeting over at the temple. 
Uh, this was a game changer. I don't know the full dynamic. I don't know what it was. Something about Stephen's death just opened the floodgate. And it, something we're going to read in a moment, this house to house, tells me that this Saul fellow, Saul Paul, he's been taking names. He's been doing his research. And if I had to guess, it's like he's wanting to do this all along. But they've kind of been taking a hands-off approach. But now that y'all have cleared the killing of this guy, there's many more like him. And so the floodgates open. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered, the Christians, the church, all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I don't know why the apostles didn't run. The text doesn't say, so I'm not really going to preach a lot on that phrase. I'm sorry. Um, many have offered. Obviously, they were courageous men. They were good men. They were faithful. Uh, one author even said, it's like a ship when there's a gale that is coming, a storm. you got to go right into it, and these guys are leading the way. But others have wisely fled the city of Jerusalem. A little sidebar, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen. That's kind of, I think, the last thing we'll hear of Stephen. But he's dead. He's under a pile of stones. And the Jews would demand, you got to bury him today. We don't let dead bodies wait. Till. So these men buried, they're devout men. And they buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. They're lamenting. I mean, they're heartbroken. And no doubt they're, they said as much at his funeral when they buried him. But now back to Luke's key story. But Saul, who had approved of Stephen's execution, Saul was ravaging the church. Saul was ravaging the church, tearing it apart, and entering house after house. Again, I think that seems to say he's been taking names. He knows who the key leaders are, who the most influential people are. Saul is ravaging the church, entering house, not every house. It's not that he's going door to door to door necessarily. He's hitting house after house, one after another. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he's hitting the influential people first. And notice it's men and women. This wasn't like limited to just persecuting men. Women are being dragged through the streets and women are being put in prison. This guy is no holds barred. He is wide open in his persecution. Verse 4. Now what happens? Oh, a lot are put in prison. What about those that fled? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And the idea there, the word, is evangelism. They were evangelizing. So they're fleeing from Jerusalem, and they're evangelizing as they go. And then we're kind of, so that's a very broad statement. Verse 4, I think, is the most, it's the broadest, the greatest work of God in chapter 8. And now we're going to focus on this one guy beginning in verse 5 that will run through verse 40. And this morning we'll only see like three verses, uh, four verses of him. So they run. And as they go, they're preaching, they're evangelizing. Verse 5, Philip. We've already been introduced to him in chapter 6. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you see that idea he proclaimed. Verse number 4, these unnamed Christians are preaching the word. They're evangelizing. The only difference here, the word that's used for, Stephen, or for Philip's preaching, is it's like more public. He's proclaiming to them the Christ, the people of Samaria, and the crowds. And it's not that he went and found a crowd and just started preaching about the Christ. Obviously, he's going to draw a crowd. How? The crowds in Samaria with one accord, like as one person, one mind, 
one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So we know the, Jesus performed miracles. The apostles performed miracles. Last chapter we saw that Stephen had the ability to perform miracles. And now we're finding another man named Philip. So the people of Samaria with one heart, one mind, they're paying attention to what Philip's, what's drawn their attention, what's drew this crowd. Verse 7, for unclean spirits, demons, crying out with a loud voice, shrieking, the idea, came out of many who had them. So many people in Samaria had demons, and they're coming out. We're not giving any details. No doubt, I don't know if he touched them with his hands. Obviously, he would have spoken to them. No doubt, used the name of Christ. We don't give him details. Un, why the crowd? For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The idea, healed by God through the hands, perhaps the voice, the words spoken by this man, Philip. And we have a summary statement of what happens here in this city in Samaria. So there was much joy in that city. Did you notice number one this morning? We'll look at three things. This idea is here, verses one through three. And would you notice with me that Saul spearheads a great persecution? Saul is going to spearhead, he ends up spearheading a great persecution. As we think back in our minds, if you've been with us for a while, you know that back in chapter, uh, yes, chapter six, we're introduced to these seven people who I believe are deacons. The first one listed is Stephen, but he's not just a deacon. He has a ministry at the synagogues. The Jewish in Jerusalem would have been filled with Jewish synagogues, but he was a particular kind of Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew that was born outside of Israel, but was Jewish and one who would come to the feast. So apparently he lives outside of Israel. He comes to the feast. He ends up getting saved, and he stays, and they start forming these synagogues, and so Guys, listen, I can't say for sure, but where the text says Saul approved of his execution, it seems we know that Saul, Paul, is connected to Stephen's death. I cannot guarantee this, but I'll throw it out again. It seems that Saul, Paul, was a member or a teacher or somehow connected to the synagogues that Stephen attended. And Stephen starts teaching and preaching things about Jesus that would affect the temple. In essence saying, we're not going to need to offer any more sacrifices. It's a great place as a place to pray. But we don't need to offer any more sacrifices. And Paul and the other leaders are going to try to oppose him in debate. But they can't beat him. I can't guarantee that, but I believe that, that Paul actually tried to debate Stephen, and he couldn't win. Remember, Stephen had two massive advantages. He had the Holy Spirit, and he had the truth on his side. Paul, had, at that time, did not have the Holy Spirit or the truth. And so here he is, this thorn in the side of Paul who gets put to death, and what a relief. What a relief. He loves it. Do y'all remember who Paul's teacher was? Remember his name, Gamaliel? Remember chapter 5? So in chapter 5, Gamaliel, who was a member of the great council, they had a problem. What are we going to do about these Christians? Gamaliel's advice was, hey, listen, these movements come and go. Let's just write it out. Let's see if it's going to fizzle out. Would you write this down? Gamaliel had a wait-and-see attitude about Christianity, but not Saul of Tarsus. Paul's attitude is they need to be exterminated. They need to be extinguished. We don't need to see if it's going to fizzle out. We need to stomp this thing out. And 
That's the way Saul approached. And apparently he had been held back. And again, I promise you, if you could go back in time, Saul would say, I love the guy. He is brilliant. He's taught me so much. Everybody recognized who he is. But the old guy's wrong this time. The old guy's wrong. We don't need to just wait and see what's going to happen with Christianity. We need to kill him. And this is Paul. This may not be true of you, and that's fine. I know a lot of you may have different Bible characters. So there's, there's God. There's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, right? In, in the Bible, that's God is God, and God alone is God. But when we move down into the categories of people in the Bible, my favorite to this day is the guy that's in verse number one. And I mention that for this reason. I love Paul. But what we're getting here. What you're reading in verse 1 and verse 3, you're getting a behind-the-scenes, a look. What is this guy's personality like? He, in his unsafe state, we're getting a picture into the personality of Saul Paulus. And what, what, what we're seeing is this guy only knows one way to live. He only has one speed. It is 100 miles an hour. It's this. If he believes in something, he is going to go after it very zealously. So what are we seeing? We see his natural, unsaved, without Christ, personality, and the great zeal. With What I'm saying, Paul could not, it is just not in him to be a lukewarm Christian. If you're here this morning and you're kind of a mealy mouth, living on the fringe, saved but barely saved, you know, Christian, you would absolutely drive Paul nuts. His attitude, if we believe this, we need to go 100 miles an hour because this matters and that's how he approaches this. These people are against God, he thinks. I'll not have you turn there, but in Acts chapter 23, the persecutor, Paul, is going to become the persecuted, and he himself is going to end up about 15 to 20 years after this, when we get to chapter 23, Lord willing, he's going to stand and tell the Sanhedrin, I have, men and brothers, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Let that sink in. This man, who has no reason to lie, standing in front of the Sanhedrin, years after this, and he's saying, from where I can't say from now on, but I'm telling you, from not, I'm not saying I've lived sinlessly. I'm saying from here backward, I've lived with a clean conscience. That includes this whole scene. So if you're taking notes, I would invite you to write this. This is a lesson for us. This not only shows his zealous personality and his personality without the Holy Spirit. The fact that he does what he does with a good, clean conscience proves... That it is not enough for us to live with a clean conscience. We must also have a Bible-educated conscience. So as you write that, please listen. keep listening as you're writing that. Two or three weeks ago, we talked about God abandoning people. And one of the ways that you'll make sure that God doesn't abandon you is when God reveals himself and shows truth, then respond to that truth. So guys, what I'm saying, I know you're right, I want you to listen. One of, the, one of the best things I could tell you as a pastor is live with a clean conscience. The conscience is where God works. Your conscience, you say, what's my conscience? Your conscience tells you do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. So I'm going to advise you this way. Whatever your conscience tells you to do is the right thing, do it. And if your conscience says, no, that's the wrong thing, then don't do it. But here's the problem. 
Your conscience may be wrong in what it is telling you is right and wrong. And such is the case with Paul, Saul of Tarsus. This man, in a moment you're going to see the word convinced. Let this sink in. He, in his heart of hearts, is positive he's right. I am positive. I know I am right. But he was actually dead wrong. And he could have pulled Bible. He knew the Old Testament. He could have pulled Bible to give reasons. The problem was he was blind to whole other parts of the Bible. Be careful. You say, I believe that, and I believe that, and I don't believe in that. Do you have a whole Bible view for why you believe what you do? And if you believe what you say you believe, do you live like it really matters? Join me if you would. You're in chapter 8. Flip over to chapter 26. Let's get Paul's own testimony about his life at this time. Acts chapter number 26. His testimony, which you're going to see in chapter 9 coming up, is given again in chapter 22. And the third time, uh, Luke is like me. Luke's the author of Acts. Luke's favorite guy was Paul. My favorite guy is Paul as well. Loves Peter. He loves Peter. Peter's great. Peter's your favorite guy. That's awesome. He's just not as good as Paul, right? Sorry, he's just not as good as Paul. Um, so Luke thinks he's so important. His testimony's in here three times. He gives it himself twice. Luke gives the history of it in chapter 9. Look at verse 9. Here's Paul. I'm jumping in the middle. Paul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So here's Paul saying, this is what was going on in my life. I was convinced this Jesus, he came, we killed him. They were saying he was resurrected. In my mind, his name is still around, and they're still advancing his name. So I need to oppose the name of Christ. Verse 10, and I did so. I was convinced I should do it, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests... But when they were put to death, so what that tells us what happened to Stephen was the first one. And we have many, apparently, unnamed Christians that are put to death. Paul says, not only did I put them in prison after receiving authority, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I don't, I don't know if Paul was part of the Sanhedrin. Some say yes, some say no. But there came a point, apparently, where there's a vote about this person and that person and that person. And maybe they had a black stone and a white stone and they passed the cup around. Or maybe it's it's all in favor, all opposed. Or would the gentleman from so-and-so, what is your take on, what is your vote? And you, sir, what is yours? And there was no doubt. Paul, every time, guilty, kill him. Why do we even ask? He's 100% kill him every time. What about you? I don't know, this may be a little. I say we give him another chance. Paul, kill him. Look at verse 10. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. How? So catch that phrase. Get that phrase. Paul is saying, and I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them blaspheme. Paul 
who firmly believed in God the Father, would never try to make anyone blaspheme God the Father. What he's saying is here, years later, looking back, realizes when I was trying to get people to blast, to speak against the name of Jesus because Jesus is God, I was trying to make people blaspheme. And the way it's worded here, it, it gives the hint that he wasn't very successful. He may have had a few that he could get to blaspheme. Now, how would you go, get, go about getting people to blaspheme the name of Jesus? How would you do it? It's called What's it called? Starts with a T. Torture. Verse 11. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So take that text, put it back with what we read earlier about verse 1, where he delighted over Stephen's death. And this verse 3, how he's ravaging and dragging. And if we put it all together, here's what happened. I was convinced I needed to oppose the name of Jesus. I went to the Sanhedrin. The chief priest gave me authority. I started going down to the synagogues, and I rounded them up. I put them in prison, and then I tortured them to try to get them to blaspheme the name of Christ. And when they came up for whether their life's in the balance, whether they're going to live or die, I always voted against them. And when I had done that there, then I started going to other cities and doing it there as well. This man is filled with rage and hatred and to a Jew, zeal is extreme love for God and extreme hatred for anything that opposes God. And in this man's mind, I am, I am right in what I'm doing. Back to chapter 8. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off, he dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. Barclay writes of the word ravaging. Let these words, I'm not going to linger, just hear them. Barclay writes that ravaging denotes a brutal and sadistic cruelty. This is this man in his natural personality. I've got some things in my natural personality that are still there that's ugly. I've learned a few things. I've learned. Don't play a lot of board games with people. <laughs> Jeff, if you do... Don't care. Just don't care. I used to, I mean, I used to play basketball. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. I'd be on staff. And I man, I was oh, man. And I was right. I just knew I was right. And I was zealous. And this man had some ugly things about him. Barclay continues: the word ravaging is the idea of a wild animal savaging a body. Would you picture an eagle? Coming out, swooping down, taking its prey and just letting the other eaglets. And it's, it's alive and they're just tearing this thing apart. A big cat, a bear, hyenas, a pack of dogs. And they're just tearing. This is Paul's attitude. This is what he's doing to the church. This word, dragging off men and women, means to drag by force against the will. It's the idea of a fish that's caught in a net. Of course, now we're thinking you really, that, that thing's doing everything he can to get, nope, no, you don't. I'm dragging you in. Men and women, being, children being left in the house crying. Doesn't matter. That's somebody else's problem. You're going to, to prison. And then torturing them, trying to get them to blaspheme the name of Christ. Write this down. As we head to 1 Timothy chapter 1, it was in the context of Acts 8 verse number 3 that Paul says of himself that he was the chief of sinners. Or as the ESV is going to put it here, the foremost of sinners. This is the context. Why would Saul, Paul... Say, 
He's the foremost. Why would he say he's the chief? It's in the context of this. What we're talking about. This ugly part of his life. Once you've done that, flip over if you would. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his young protege. The man he's taught um, as an apostle to his student, pupil. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him. This is real. This is real. This is real stuff. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul said, hey, Timothy, I'm going to let you behind the scenes. I thank God that Jesus, I thank Christ that he lets me be his apostle. He's counted, he's counted me worthy, and he's shown me this grace, and he's at so Lord... Thank you that you let me do what I do. Verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer. He would never blaspheme the name of God the Father, but he now in hindsight realizes he was blaspheming. Like, I don't even want to tell you the stuff I have said about Jesus. Loudly, publicly, privately hated that person. Verse 13, though formerly, so he now, Jesus lets me be his apostle, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I was the most arrogant, rude, prideful, I mean, I was awful. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's not saying that, oh, when you don't know you're sinning, God lets it all slide. Paul is saying that God let me do, he has my appointed this position because he knew that I was ignorant and unbelieving. I didn't have all the facts. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now really get verse 15. We'll probably come back to this, I would imagine, in two or three weeks. Paul tells Timothy, now here, the saying is trustworthy. Guys, listen. Anything the Bible says is true. But when you start a sentence by saying, hey, 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 this saying is trustworthy. But then he doubles down. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Like you could put the full weight of your whole life on what I'm about to tell you. What is it? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Mark it down. He came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief. Like, put all the sinners in a big group and make tears. This would not be where you want to be. The for- I'm the foremost. Oh, you're the foremost what? I'm the worst sinner. You don't want to be that. Paul says, this group, I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you see what Paul said? I received mercy. I got to be an apostle because God knew that I was doing it in ignorance. He just, in his grace and mercy, overlooked it. But I also received mercy. God saved me, the worst of all the sinners, as an example that he really means business. He came to earth to save sinners. So no one can ever say, God won't save me. Yes, he will. Oh, no, you don't understand what I've done. You've done some really bad things. I've done really, you don't understand. He, he won't save me. How many did you kill? What are you talking about? How many did you kill? Kill what? How many Christians have you killed? Have you killed any Christians? Well, God's already saved the worst of us. He will save you. The question is, will you believe in him? Make your way back if you would. 
And I think we'll only go from that one more time from this text, Acts chapter number 8. Look in the middle of verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution about the church, against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. Forgive me for referring to movies. And if you're younger than me, you're not going to probably know these. But I read this, and this is a devastating scene that we're... And you just go home and you need to really think about it. I'm not going to develop it. There's a movie called Schindler's List, and it's about the Nazi oppression and the death camps and what they did to the Jews. won't go into it all, but there's a scene in there where the, the Nazis had been tightening and already start, started a form of persecution, but there's this one scene, and it's not fresh on my mind. I just remember them going in and really going into the ghettos and pulling those Jews out and throwing all their stuff in the streets and setting things afire and stealing their stuff and hauling them off to concentration camps. And when they resisted, they just killed them right on the spot. I mean, that, that persecution, I'm like, it was hovering, but boom. I mean, it just came. The other, which probably has less to do with the message, but my mind thought about was a movie way back in the day when I was growing up. I was a teenager, and it was called Red Dawn. And it had um, Patrick Swayze in it and some others. And some of you are like, oh, I remember that movie. So in the movie, hypothetically, the Russians come and start attacking the United States. And there's this group of teenage boys, and they head for the hills. But before they do, one of them's dad owns like a sporting goods place. And so they go load the truck with as much as they can get in the truck. before they. So they're throwing in sleeping bags and food and things to cook with. And lots of guns and lots of ammo, whatever they could get. And they take off. And the good thing is that little group of boys single-handedly beat the Russian army. That's what's awesome. You ought to watch the movie. I, I think they've done a remake. If persecution were to hit today in this area, some of us are being taken to prison. Do you run home? Now, today we have a car. Did they have beasts of burden? Did, did some of them, I mean, there was a lot of poverty. There's 20,000 of them. They didn't all leave, but you don't want to look suspicious. Load up the wagon. Stop them right there. Yep, them. They're fleeing. Lock them up. Do you go to the house? When you go to the house, what do you take with you? No doubt these people, this is real world, really happened. It just happened in a day. And they're having to choose between sentimental, valuable, Got to get that. That's where we had our money. We could sell that. And the practical. But we got to go. We got to run. We got to flee. We got to get out of here. And these people are just scattering all over the place. I don't know what all they took, but we know they took two things with them. Number one, they took their faith. They took their faith. And they took the gospel. They would not have had a Bible. They did not have their own personal Bible like we do. If, I, if this was me, I would probably grab my ESV study Bible, I think, and my computer. That's probably like, okay, let's go. I'm go by and grab a couple things. We've got to get out of here. I want to grab those two things, right? I don't know what you would grab, but this was a real event, and it was devastating. You say, well, Jeff, good thing. Persecution will never hit us. So far it hasn't, but can I, I promise you something? At this very moment, I'm making this sentence, I promise you there are Hundreds of people around the world meditating on ways to persecute a group of people simply because they are Christian. Hundreds are giving their full thought process and meditation on details of how to persecute Christians. It's happening right now. I promise you. Now just before we hit our second thought this morning. Second thought and it will be more brief than this first one. First one, the day is the longest. 
Look at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Christians are fleeing. Saul's rejoicing. Some bury Stephen to get the body. They take, take a risk, perhaps. Give him a proper burial, and they're making great lamentation. Would you write the following down? They are lamenting. Christians sorrow at the deaths of their Christian loved ones. Christians, we sorrow at the deaths of our loved ones. I'm talking about Christians that have Christian loved ones. How do Christians think about when they know a person was a brother and sister in Christ? How do they? We sorrow. Why? We're going to miss them. We miss their presence and we miss their influence. We've had several people die over the last seven years since we've been here. There's a couple of them. God didn't check with me. There's one in particular I would have really loved to have her influence here. Would have really loved it. But God is sovereign and he had a different plan. We sorrow as those who lose loved ones and we miss their influence. But if you're taking notes, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We sorrow differently. They were lamenting Stephen, but their lamentation is very different. It's very different. Christians don't sorrow as those with no hope because we know we're going to see them again. And we know their influence is not over. They're going to be serving God through eternity. He's a very powerful person throughout eternity. Go see them again. Maybe we'll be working next to each other. We'll be worshiping together. Go see them again. Have you written that? Because here I need to finish this point with some, some questions. One of the things that I think we don't consider, and this is not to make everybody uncomfortable, Christians do not sorrow as those who have no hope at death, but most people should sorrow with no hope. Most people, when it comes to funerals, should be sorrowing because there is no hope. What I find is that even Christians wait until it's too late to really worry about their loved one. They have a big accident, they're dying, and then all of a sudden, will you go talk to them? And now it's urgent. They don't care about the loved one until it's too late. And then the other thing a lot of Christians do is they console themselves with a false assurance. Start pulling and reading into. There's no fruit whatsoever. There was never a testimony. But just going through life, consoling themselves and blocking. And There should be more sorrowing as if without hope. Because most people do not die and go to heaven. Most people have died and gone to hell. That's the fact. And I don't say that gleefully. I'm saying there's something wrong with us. We just like to ignore this. So i got to ask you. How is it with your children? You cannot make your children get saved. And I know I'm talking to some people like, Jeff, why are you bring this up? This is a source. I, I know they're lost. You cannot get them saved. If you could, you would. I understand that. How is it with your parents? Come on, is your parents still alive? How is it with their soul? How is it with your brother and your sister? How is it with 
your friends that you care. How is it with them? Are we going to wait till they die? And then all of a sudden, would you please get up and say some nice words? No preacher can preach anybody into heaven. You can't save them, but you can have the difficult, awkward conversations. And shame on us if we don't care about that until it's too late. Right now, it may not be too late. Speaking of not too late, last thing. If, I need everybody to do this, if you died today, you died today, 13th. And all we have is your life from today and what you've lived. However old you are. If you died today, what would be said? What would we say? What would they say? They made great. Stephen died and some people are rejoicing. And others are lamenting. What would happen if you died today? What would be said? You ought to think about that. More importantly, what would... Jesus say, if you died today about the life, and all you have is the life you've lived up till now. Another question, what do you want to be said? Because there's a song around here, and I can't say word for word, but it's something like this. If I'm not dead, he's not done. If I'm not dead, he's not done. You say, well, I don't think I like what would... Would we have material? Would we have something to say? Or would you be one of those people like, You feel 30, 40, 45 minutes, maybe fill an hour with a bunch of nonsense that really doesn't matter. They love the Tar Heels. Okay. What would be said? What do you want to be said? You have today. Tomorrow never comes. Well, tomorrow I'm going to, nope, tomorrow will never come. It will always be today. Until there is no more today. Is your life making an eternal impact? Who's going to preach your funeral? You say, who is going to preach? I know who's going to preach. You are. You preach your own funeral. All we do is get up and try to give the gospel and hopefully have some things to say. You preach, you preach your funeral. How are you preaching it? Number two this morning. Spend just a little time in verse number four because verse four is so important. Number two, God makes great use of persecution. God makes great use of persecution. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. (laughs) Uh, Keep your pen going. God is sovereign. And we say God is sovereign, we mean God has control. He's fully in control. He has control. God is sovereign over all things, including persecution. God is sovereign. He has control. God is in control even when persecuting. This is why we're singing these songs today, and I'm thinking, oh, all this, what we're singing is truth, and it applies to verse 4. God is completely sovereign over all things, including persecution. You got your Bible. I said we would only do it maybe once more, but I, I lied. I, I was mistaken. I was sincere. I had a clean conscience when I said it, but now we need to look back at verse 1. Chapter 1. Look at chapter 1. Look at verse 8. Because i got a question for you. Look at verse 8. The disciples want to know, hey, is the kingdom getting ready to come? Is that why you've called us back to Jerusalem? Jesus says in verse 7, hey, apostles, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by. Are we getting ready to start the kingdom? Guys, it's not for you to know the specifics. 
Verse 8, but you will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So I have a question for you. Is that a God-ordained mission strategy? Is that an outline? Is that a game plan? And what was that? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Or is it just a prophecy? Let me tell you, boys, what's going to happen. You're going to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit's going to come on me. You're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. I think it's both. And you say, Jeff, why are you doing it? Go back to chapter 8. It could be that as this persecution hits, it could be that the church suddenly somehow strategize, hey, it's time to carry out phases two and three. Let's get out and start witnessing in Judea. We've kind of been here in Jerusalem, got that covered. They're rejecting it. Let's get out in Judea and then out into Samaria. Let's go phase two enacted. Possibly they were intentionally doing this, but guys, I've got to be honest, I don't think the wording is such. The wording seems to indicate that this happens in verse 4 is just spontaneous, spirit-led way of life. Christians just going, and as they go, they're taking their faith, and they're taking the gospel, and they are speaking. Can we have that? Yes. So God is sovereign, even in persecution. Maybe the church, what they're trying to do here in verse 4 was intentional, but I don't think it was. It seems like it's just spontaneous. The Holy Spirit in them is leading them to do this preaching the word as a way of life. It's just a way of life. Again, I'm going to ask you to do two things at once. I know you're writing, but can I remind you? Verse number 4, while you're writing, hear this. The word scattered in verse 4 sounds accidental. It sounds random. They were scattered. Same thing in verse 1. They were scattered in Judea and Samaria. Just almost like, oh, dropped a box of toothpicks. Oh, opened that bag of jelly beans. They slipped out of my hands and they've scattered everywhere. Okay? That's us messing up. That is not this situation. The word scattering here, you know what it means? It means a sower who is getting seed and he's scattering the seed. The sower is scattering. Pause writing for a moment. Pause writing. Look this way. Sower is scattering the seed. The seed are people. The sower, the idea here is God is the sower scattering his people. He's putting his people. There's nothing accidental. There's nothing random. This persecution is playing perfectly into God's plan. He's literally placing his people as seed exactly where he wants them. You are right where God, who is in control, he wanted you to be here right now. You ought to be asking yourself, of all the time periods, why is God having me here? Of all the places, why here? That may change, but why am I here for now? Why am I, you students ought to be asking, why God, do you have me in this classroom with those classmates? Teachers, you ought to be asking, God, why have you... I've asked that question before. God, why have you given me him or her or them? But you ought to be asking it a little more positive. Lord, now why have you given me these students? Lord, why am I at this job? God, why was I born in this family? God, why do you have me at this church? Nothing's random. You've put me here. 
you haven't finished, uh, you can finish writing that. Verse 4 means that having been driven from their home, driven from their home, barely escaping prison, had they gone to prison, possibly being put to death, and yet their whole natural response is to share the gospel as they go. This is the very thing for which they are being persecuted. Let that sink in. Driven from their home, i got to leave town. Leaving all our valuables, leaving my business behind, that house, my loved ones, having to run for our lives. Why is this happening? As they go, they just spontaneously, spirit-fed, spirit-led, giving the gospel as they go. And then there's Saul. Write this down. Saul didn't know it. He didn't know it. You talk about massive backfire. This is, a, this is a massive backfire. I'll kill him. I'm going to blow that fire out. You got a fire in the backyard? Uh-oh, campfire's getting out of control. Quick, go get the leaf blower. Bad idea. Saul tried to blow out Christianity, and all he ends up doing is spreading the embers, and there ends up being many more fires than there ever was in Jerusalem. Saul didn't know it, but persecution and it, I, persecution does at least three things. Number one, hear me, hear me, hear me. Persecution purifies the church. You say, persecution, man, when it hits, church numbers drop. You're right. Who's leaving? The pretenders. It purifies the church. When persecution comes, it drives the church to its knees. Suddenly, we start praying very fervently. And you remember our little outline back from chapter 1? Prayer leads to power, which leads to proclamation, which leads to persecution, which leads to more prayer, which leads to more power, which leads to greater proclamation, which is going to lead to more persecution. This is the pattern that's going to run throughout this book. Saul's persecution is just driving the church to its knees. They're getting more power, and ultimately what happens is the name and the fame of Jesus gets spread further than it had been before. That's what happens. There is an enemy of the church that is worse than persecution, and it is apathy. Apathy is far more dangerous to the church than persecution. We just recently did some study on Wednesday nights about missions and missiology, and I didn't share everything that I, that I had read, but I'll tell you guys, you ought to look it up. Do y'all, hear, hear me, hear me, do y'all know that the mission models and they're probably going to happen. You understand the mission models show the church in North America fading? We are very arrogant here. We're 3% of the world's population, and we just think we're like probably the best, greatest Christians it's ever been. Do you know the future models show that the church is going to thrive much more in Asia and in the southern hemisphere, Africa, South America, far more than Europe and North America? The American church is very apathetic. There are, there are some... Different people that are zealous for Christ. But for the most part, the American church is very apathetic. We have no persecution, hardly. And yet, does anybody remember what Brother Hutchison, John Hutchison, told us a couple of years ago? Do y'all remember how many Chinese are getting saved every day? Do you remember that? 10,000 Chinese people are being added to the Chinese church every day. Today, 10,000 new Chinese. I heard that and I was like, that can't be right. I ran the numbers and it adds up to 3.65 million people every year coming to Christ. Granted, they have a lot more people. 
But at some point, you got to have that one-on-one with somebody. We started with a lot more Christians. They're adding them over there, and they are under persecution. Persecution is not a bad thing. Total backfire. Satan has to know this. I thought about him. He's a real person. He's a singular person. He's a lot smarter than me, a lot more powerful by himself. I have the Holy Spirit, therefore I am now more powerful than him. But of himself, much more powerful, much smarter. But to be so smart, he's an absolute idiot. He knows. He has learned this. Here he's learning it the first time. He has learned that persecution does not just crush the church. It leads to Christ's fame being magnified and being expanded. I think he is in a super big dilemma. Knowing God is sovereign, but he can't help it. I hate you, and I hate your people. I want to inflict pain. And here he comes in ravaging. Stirs this guy up. Ravages, but it backfires It never works because Jesus sovereignly uses persecution for his own purposes. Just before we go to the last point, would you look over at 1 Corinthians 9? I said we'd go one other time. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. I hope I didn't force this this week. This was in my private reading. Sometimes it's just like, oh, that ties into what I'm preaching. And that maybe happened here. Here's the scene. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's making a point about the context is, should you eat meat offered to idols? You with me? Here's what he ends up doing. Hey, they are not real gods, and so you could eat that meat. But you know what? Sometimes we give up our rights. Sometimes just because you can do something doesn't mean you will do it. And here's this illustration. Corinthians, when I came there, I started that church, and y'all became a thriving church. A lot of people came in. I was the one who started that. You know what? You should have given me money to pay for my expenses. You didn't. If you got your Bible open, hopefully you turned over there. Look at verse 14. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord commanded. He uses other illustrations. A country doesn't send soldiers... To go be soldiers and say, hey, by the way, you don't mind paying your own way, do you? No, you're going to pay the way. An ox that's working in the field plowing, if that ox wants to reach over and grab some grain and chew on it, as a, you don't like put a muzzle on it. Like, no. Paul's point, I started this church. You should have been doing this. I'm not writing this so that you'll start paying me. Then why didn't you charge them and tell them in, in the moment? Because I wanted to not take advantage of my rights. I want to lay them down. Why would you do that? Now, here's where I want you to go. Verse 17. Paul gives us a behind the scenes of what motivated him to do what he does. And in this case, why do you share the gospel? And when you were in Corinth, why did you do it free of charge? Paul, you worked as a leather maker, a a leather worker, a tent maker to pay your own way. And you did ministry as a bivocational job. Why did you do that? Verse 17. For if, everybody hear this, if I do this of my own will... I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul, why do you share the gospel with people? If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. That's best case scenario. But if not... He's he's allowing there may be times where somebody's like, I'm not really doing this 
out of my own will. If not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. A stewardship means something that a master puts in your possession. You take it knowing that after a period of time, they're going to come back and say, and what did you do with what I gave you? Oh, I buried it. You wicked servant. You wicked servant. If you're taking notes, write this down. Paul gives two reasons why he does what he does. Number one, of his own will. Because he wants to help people. That's called love. I just want to help them. I love them. I'm doing this because I want to help them. And then there's this other that is also. So one, I just want to help people. And then there's this other motivation. But he does because he says, knowing that he's been entrusted with a stewardship that he's going to give an account of to God. A thought we've been hitting over and over on Wednesday night recently is love is the great motivation. Both of these, y'all are writing this down, both of these are legitimate and good motivations. One is better. That first one is better. Jeff, why should we share the gospel of your own will because you get to, because you care about people and you love them? You say, well, that's not in me. I don't have that. Then you should still be sharing the gospel because you should know that because I'm saved, I really got saved, I now know, I may not know all everything perfectly, but I know what it takes to get saved. And so I've been entrusted with the gospel, and I'm going to give an account one day to God, to the Lord Jesus, what I've done with that. Well, if the first one doesn't motivate you, the second one ought to. You ever seen these people? They ride bikes. They ride bikes. Seen those people? They're running. They're running and they're riding bikes. There's a lot of them out there because they've made a commitment. Need to exercise. Need to lose weight. And then there are those other people. Not me. Man, why are you on that bike, Kyle? Nathan? I love it. I love it. You wouldn't know this man. Mike Davis, why are you running and running? I love it. Why are you telling people about Jesus? Because I have a duty to tell them. Okay. Why are you telling about Jesus? They need to get saved. Jesus is worthy of the glory of their life. People are dying to go to hell. I know the answer. I love them. I need to help them. Oh, both are good. Yours is better. If you lack love, what well, we've been saying on Wednesday, just pray. God, give me love. This is amazing to me. These people, as you go back to chapter 8, persecuted, it's costing them, and their natural response is just keep on doing the very thing for which they were persecuted. We're going to finish this morning just beginning to look at a uniquely gifted man. He's going to run all the way through verse 40. His name's Philip. But let's make no mistake, the primary work of God in this chapter is done by these unnamed people in verse 4. Don't forget them. They have done the bulk of the work in chapter 8. And then number 3 this morning, Philip carries the gospel to Samaria. Philip carries the gospel to Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Who is this Philip? Quick note. There's at least two Philips in the New Testament. This is not the apostle. This is the deacon. This is the only man specifically said in the New Testament to be an evangelist. He's not the only evangelist. There's a gift. And some people, we're all called to do evangelism. Some have a gift of evangelism. This man has the gift of evangelism. 
Many had it in the New Testament. He's the only one actually singled out and said in chapter 21, Philip the evangelist. So this, this is Philip the deacon. This is not the apostle Philip listed in chapter 1. This is Philip from chapter 6. Second question we need to ask ourselves, verse number 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Who are these Samaritans? Who are the Samaritans? And by the way, hey guys, listen. I hope you know why I do some things I do. I know that there is a percentage of you in here. You absolutely already know who these people are. But I also know there's a group of people in here that doesn't know who they are. And so we're going to teach it. And you may have heard us say this three or four times. But maybe today will be the time. Let, okay, now I got it. I'm actually logging that information. Who are these Samaritans? I'm going to borrow from the Amplified Study Bible, which had a note that writes the following. Everybody with me? Here we go. Philip, running from persecution, goes into Samaria and starts preaching to the Samaritans. Who are these Samaritans? Quote, in the first century, the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. The Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. And religious deviance. Why? Following, watch, so there's Israel. But after Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom divided. And there's these ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. We could even add Levi. So it's like these three. There's the other nine and a half, ten tribes up there. They split... The study Bible writes, following the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., Samaria had been resettled by colonists brought to the land by the Assyrians. So the Assyrian empire conquered the ten northern tribes. They're going to come down and wipe out the southern tribes as well, but God delivers them. So what they do is they take away some of these northern ten tribes, their people... They exile them out, and they bring in Gentile colonists to take their place. Our note continues. These colonists intermarried with the remaining Jews. And the Samaritans of the New Testament era were the descendants of these mixed marriages. Now watch. Look, look, look this way. Northern, they end up, some Jews are taken away. Those that are left... They move in Gentile colonists. They end up marrying. The southern tribes are down here watching all this happen. And they've determined, we will not do that. But 130, 40 years later, they are conquered by the Babylonians. And they are carried away exile. But they made up their mind, if you want to write this down. The southern Jews, having seen what was happening, they refused to lose their identity when they were carried away into exile. They refused. We are not going to intermarry with Gentiles. We're going to stick to what... God had told us to do in the Old Testament. And so the southern, in their mind, we've stuck true. We did not intermarry like you guys did up there. God eventually, after 70 plus years, allows the Jews, the southern Jews, to come back to their homeland. And they're going to rebuild the temple. Got to rebuild the temple where Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Got to rebuild the wall. Going to rebuild the temple. Watch. The Samaritans said, hey, we'll come help you rebuild the temple. The southern Jews said, no thanks. You're unclean. We don't want your help. And man, where there was already a division between the northern tribes and the southern, these two different nations, which were still Jewish, now this one's intermarried, and this one is saying, no. We don't have anything to do with you. And now there's real division. 
Study Bible writes, because of their mixed heritage and their rejection of the temple in Jerusalem and most of the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews considered them to be unclean. The Samaritans only accepted the books of Moses, not the rest of the Old Testament. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. So Wednesday night, we had a very different study Wednesday night, and probably a good over a third of you were there. Um, and I can't reteach all of that, but y'all that you were there, help me out. Everybody, listen, we looked at this idea of Matthew 28, verse 19, which said, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. What was that Greek word for nations? Say it again. Ethnos. Ethnos means peoples. Sometimes it's translated as Gentiles and nations. Everybody hear me. In Matthew 28 and other places, ethnos is all through the New Testament, over and over. Again, sometimes it's translated the peoples. The peoples. The people. Nation. Nations. Gentiles. It's this word ethnos comes over and over. What we hear when we read Matthew 28, 19, for much of my life, here's what I heard. I heard this over and over. The call is to take the gospel to the nations. That's true. But what we think are political nations, what we think are boundaries and government, I mean, I'm sorry, governmental, geographical countries, The call is not to take the gospel and make disciples of all of the countries in the world. The call is to take the gospel and make disciples of all of the people groups. There's over 8 billion people in the world. Does anybody remember? Give me the round number. Don't give me the hundreds. How many of you remember from Wednesday night? How many people groups are there in the world? 17,000, according to the Joshua Project. 17,428 people groups. The Samaritans, to this day, I've read, are still one of those people groups. So here goes Philip, persecuted. He goes into Samaria. This is a whole new people group. The the, The call of the Great Commission is not to take the gospel to the United States. It's not to take the gospel to Australia. It's not to take the gospel to Papua New Guinea, which we looked at Wednesday night. Papua New Guinea has 9.5 million people, and yet they speak 839 different languages. 839. The call is to go to all of those hundreds of people groups. We're to make disciples to Christ out of... Here's one of them. Write this note down. The Samaritans were a separate people group. They have their own culture, different culture, separate culture, separate customs. They have a separate heritage. They have a separate, learned, unique way of thinking. Different from the Jews. They have a separate system of religion. They have a separate temple mountain called Mount Gerizim. They have rejected Jerusalem, Mount Zion. They worship God over at Mount Gerizim. And they were expecting the Messiah. So this, they're expecting the Messiah, but almost everything else about the Samaritans, their heritage is different, customs are different, culture's different. I don't know that their language was greatly different. Perhaps it was. And here comes Philip. And he's going to share the gospel. For time's sake, I'll need to, as soon as you write that, Tara, if you just give like another 45 seconds and then put this one up. Philip comes to Samaria, and what does he do? He starts building on the foundation 
of revelation that Jesus had already made in Samaria in John chapter 4. Do y'all remember what happened in John 4? Woman at the well. So Jesus comes. He goes out of his way to go through Samaria. Remember the Jews hate the Samaritans, but not Jesus. Jesus comes through. He spends only two or three days there. He only does one subtle miracle. He doesn't heal anybody. He comes into town. He sits at a well. A Samaritan woman comes. He asks her to give him some water. Would you give me some water? And she's shocked. Y'all don't talk to us. How come you're talking to me? He says, ma'am, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me to give you living water. And off the conversation goes. Ultimately, he ends up telling this woman, tell you what. Go get your husband and then come back and we'll talk. She says, oh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, in that you're telling the truth. You don't have a husband because you've actually had five husbands and the man you're living with now is actually not your husband. You're living in adultery and the implication is she is over and over and over divorced. You're right. She's blown away. How could you possibly know that? You are not from here. You would not be able to know that. She starts saying, well, we Samaritans, we worship God here at Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship him down in Jerusalem. Jesus says, y'all don't know what you're doing. We know more what we're doing. And then he gives her a lesson about the nature of God being a spirit. She responds, well, when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us everything that we need to know. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Well, what? Then she goes into town and says, y'all got to come see a man who's told me everything. He knows my background. There's no way. you got to come. Is this not the Christ? Jesus preaches to this whole crowd of people. They end up realizing he's the Christ. Well, that's a few years before this. Here comes Stephen. He's now building on the revelation that Jesus has made. Stephen doesn't need to say, hey, listen, there's this thing called a Messiah. We're looking. He doesn't even need to say, he has come. We understand that he's come. No, no, no. His name is Jesus. Yes, we know that. He's been here. So he just reminds them of that. I'm reading into verse 6, but I'm confident this is what Philip did. You already know there's a Messiah. You know that he's come. You know his name is Jesus. Here's what you don't know. He died on a cross. And he carried your sins and my sins. And he paid, and God the Father poured out his wrath on him, and he died. And he was buried for three days, and he rose again. And he's given us his gospel that anyone who will put their faith and trust in him will be brought into salvation. But it's more than that. They'll be brought into a unified family where there are no tears, and there's no less than and greater than, where everyone is on equal footing. And that's what I'm here to offer you. And this blows them away. You're offering us something, yes, one unified body with all people who put their faith and trust in Christ. So let's close right here. Awesome. Philip is willing to go preach. That's awesome. But will they listen? Will they listen to this Jew? Yeah, God had a plan. Why will they listen? Because just like in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, God gave Philip this ability to go into town and start casting out demons and start healing paralyzed people and lame people. And that draws the crowd. And they've never, remember, everybody hear me. Jesus didn't do any physical miracles in his two or three days in Samaria. And they didn't go down to Jerusalem. So they would not have seen these miracles of Christ or the apostles. This is brand new to them. This is absolutely blowing them away. He has their attention. And again, playing off of Wednesday night, your last note this morning is this. Christians, Philip is our example, are most effective 
when we earn the right to speak about Jesus when we're in a different culture. They didn't have a completed New Testament. So God allows Stephen, I'm sorry, Philip, to perform miraculous signs and wonders that validated him as the true messenger of God. And this is when Christians are effective, is when we earn the right to be heard. When we're in a different culture and they don't know us, why would we ever listen to you? It's when we show compassion to them, when we show interest in them, when we ultimately lead to a message that is not ours. It's a borrowed message that we've received and we're just sharing the good news with them. And you see verse 8. They received it. We're going to get into it next week. Verse number 12. They're going to believe in his preaching. And that's why there was much joy. The, the gospel has done what nothing else could do. It has united Samaritans and Jews. Can I put it this way? The gospel when received by any two groups of people will unite them. There are no two groups of people. You, know, you, know, you don't understand. These Hatfields and these McCoys, they don't get enough. You let them get a good dose of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they will love each other. Now, you don't understand. This group over here is very extremely racist against this group over here. You let them get saved, and they will love each other. Jews and Samaritans, what we think of as hatred here was no stronger than that. But the gospel broke down that wall, and there was joy. Do you have joy? Do you have joy this morning? Uh, just think, I'll be honest with yourself. If you're sitting here this morning, I'll just close with this thought. Jeff, you've caught me on a day. I don't, I, last week my joy is gone. It's a counterfeit religion that leaves people with no joy. So if you have no joy, there's something wrong with your religion or how you are observing your religion. There may not be anything wrong with your religion. It may be what you are doing with it in your mind. You're like, well, I have no joy because I'm carrying this massive burden. Yeah, you're not living the Christian life. You're living the you-centered life. And we all fall into that. That is easy. There's joy in Christ. It's about eyes closed. Just before I pray, I want to encourage you as we close. For real, live with a clean conscience. Live with a clean conscience. But check your conscience by the scripture. Is your Christian life motivated by duty? Or is it motivated by love? If it's only duty, pray. Right, right now, if, you're, if your heart's truth is this, Lord, you know that I serve you out of duty. Well, can I tell you, you keep serving the Lord. Share the gospel. You've been entrusted with the stewardship, but... Love is far greater. It's better than fear. It's better than guilt. It's even better than a reward. Better than duty. Ask God, Lord, would you give me love? Love for you and love for souls. When your way is difficult, and I know this morning and this week, this week represents some difficulty for some people here. Hard time. How will you respond? Would you ask yourself this way, knowing that God never wastes anything, and knowing he's sovereign, ask yourself, why is God allowing this? What is he wanting to teach me? And for the people in Acts chapter 8, he let persecution come because it was time for them to take the gospel broader than they had taken it up to that point. And he was going to drive them to be more passionate and fervent in their prayer. And he wanted the name of Jesus to be spread. Are you fulfilling why God has scattered you where you're at?
Who do you need to earn the right with to speak about Jesus? Who do you need to earn that right with? How will you earn the right? Will you show compassion? Will you show interest? Find some common ground. How is it with your children? How is it with your parents? How is it with your brother and your sister and your friends? Don't wait until it's too late. Father, I pray that you would drive your word so deep within us that it changes us. Makes us more like Christ. Father, I pray that you would create a true culture here of making disciples. Because we love you and we love people. Lord, please give us the gift of love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.